Boy, it's, it's so good to be back here, and Lakeside, you have just been loving us already uh, in so many ways. I can mostly feel it in my gut region uh, in terms of all the good food that you guys have been giving us, but it's, it's wonderful to just know that we're the family of God, we're the family of Christ, we're His people doing His work until He returns. It's the only reason we're here, amen? And so thank you so much for upholding us in your prayers and uh, just keeping the ministry in mind as well. I invite you to turn uh, this morning to Psalm 117, which is going to be our portion for uh, this morning as we just look at God's Word and seek to have our lives uh, driven by it. Uh, It is uh, an interesting psalm and so many reasons to love it, even as you turn there Probably the pages of your Bible just automatically open up to the Psalms because that's our resource, isn't it, in times of need. Uh, But Psalm 117 falls exactly in the mathematical center of the Bible. Just an interesting fact. There's 594 chapters before it and 594 chapters after it. It's also the shortest chapter and shortest Psalm in the Bible, and that's why I chose it, so we could probably get out earlier, but not, not really. Martin Luther, who said this was one of his favorite psalms, um, loved it and wrote a 36-page commentary on it. That's 18. It's only two verses, 18 pages per verse, so any sermon I preach is going to be short after that, but um, it, he said this. Luther said this. He said this psalm is short because it has some of the meatiest and most important truths in the Bible, and the Lord wanted us to remember it and grasp its meaning. In fact, my youngest girl, if you meet her afterwards, she might remember, but she just memorized this psalm a few days ago, and it's that simple and yet that profound. It's also a psalm that is part of what we call the Egyptian Hallel Psalms, uh, six psalms from Psalm 116 to Psalm 118. In case you're wondering what that means, these were psalms that were sung after the Passover. And catch this. I mean, we haven't even gotten to the psalm yet, but I think this, this context is important. What that means is, of course, every Jewish family would be singing these psalms regularly, including Psalm 117, when they were thinking about the lamb that had to be slain for them, ultimately pointing to Christ. And Jesus himself and his disciples, you remember Matthew chapter 26, verse 30 says, they sang a song, Jesus sang a song before he went to the cross. It's an interesting fact, right? He, he didn't go to the cross with a sense of just drudgery. He even went to the cross worshiping the Lord. And what was one of the, the thoughts and the, and the words that he sang as he went to his mission for God and for you and me? It was this psalm. And so that even sends chills down my bones as we get into this psalm, as we think about Christ himself seeking to center his thoughts on the truths of this psalm as important even as he went to Calvary. Why, why might he have done that? Well, James Montgomery Boyce even said, this psalm is a profound psalm in many aspects, but primarily in its missionary heartbeat. And it calls not just the Jews to worship the Lord, but it calls all nations, which very intentionally would be people that are non-Jewish to say, All of you need to come under Christ. And so no wonder he sang this psalm even as he went to Calvary. It gave him a sense of mission 
as he laid down his life for the nations. And as we look around this room, that's why we're here. It's because of Christ. In fact, Paul even uses this psalm and quotes it, the whole thing, because it's so short in Romans 15, 11, as one of the reasons why God has promised that the nations will be saved, and that's why I want to go to the ends of the earth so that Christ may be known because he's the only true one that can give satisfaction to sinners. And so let's read Psalm 117 together and just, uh, though it's short and it's sweet, just ask the Holy Spirit this morning to just channel our thoughts after the Lord Jesus Christ and teach us to think God's thoughts after him. Psalm 117, it reads like this. We don't know who wrote it. Ultimately, the Holy Spirit says, praise the Lord or praise Yahweh, all nations. Don't you love that? Not just some nations, but all nations. Laud him, and we'll talk about what that word means, but laud him, all peoples. It's just so comprehensive. And then it says, verse two, for his loving kindness is great toward us, and the truth or the faithfulness of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. Even as I read that, as you looked at it, it doesn't just resonate with missions. Yes, it does, but more importantly, it takes us to the grander scheme. I mean, what is missions all about? It's about bringing fresh praise to the Lord. And therefore, the psalm, the heartbeat of the psalm, the, the theme of the psalm, the beginning and the end, the alpha and omega of the psalm, if you will, is hallelujah. And what does that mean? Praise the Lord, as it's been translated even in our English Bibles. An unceasing command. It's an imperative in the Hebrew. The driving force of us as those that have been bought and captivated by Christ is to be less about ourselves and more about Christ, isn't it? That's what worship is. I mean, we had some great worship this morning. I was, I was singing my heart out with those songs, Behold Our God, but it shouldn't stop with just those, those moments. It should, it should just be our life. That's what this psalm is saying. Our whole life needs to be centered around nothing else, whether you eat or you drink, whether you're having tacos or whatever it is. You're worshiping the Lord. And, and how much more do we need it in these days, isn't it? These challenging days, our, our, our work in the midst of discouragement, in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of adversity, our hidden work and attitude that nobody ultimately but only God can see is to worship. I have no value in life except to be captivated by the grandeur of who God is. Hallelujah in the beginning, hallelujah at the end of every day. Life is like John the Baptist, and, and I'm beginning to realize this more and more in, in ministry. The biggest enemy of ministry is me. The biggest enemy of my life is me. The biggest enemy in my marriage is me. And, and the more I forget about me and begin to realize that my life is about Christ, I begin to affect those areas with fruitfulness and hurt them less. Like John the Baptist said, I must decrease so that Christ may increase. And the two things go together. So as we look at this psalm, the psalm commands us, it, it rests our hearts in verse one with the command to worship. And then in verse two, it gives us some of the content or the cause for that worship. As we seek, even this morning prayerfully, to say, Lord, would you make me in a new way, again, a man or a woman 
who is a worshiper. Let's look at Psalm 117. Two ways, I would summarize it in this way, two ways in which we can live lives that are consumed, just eaten up in worship to our sweet Lord. Two ways in which we can be consumed by worship. Let's look at verse 1 first as it gives us the first way to, to just live whether we eat or we drink unto the Lord for who he is and all that he is. Verse 1 says, praise the Lord. And then it shows us who he is. He's the Lord of what? All the nations. Laud him all peoples. And I think even as we, we start off with this psalm, there's a, a fresh reminder for us for this first way to, to saturate our minds with God's greatness. Saturate your mind with God's greatness. Isn't that the echo of that, that song that we sang again, Behold Our God? I just love that, that song, and I think it comes straight out of the end of the book of Job. The main lesson for Job was, Job, I'm not going to give you all the answers to all your problems, but I'm going to tell you this one thing. Have you considered how great I am? Would you just lose yourself in how great I am? And it'll give perspective even to your trials, to your cancer, to the, the worst things in life is, is not to think so much about your circumstances or think so much about who you are. That's our mistake that we make often in trying to solve our lives. But to think more about how great God is, even over those things. And so this morning, the Lord is even reminding us, and he's waking us up, and he's saying, do you know how great I am? And the answer has to be, of course, Lord, I don't. And that's why heaven is going to be eternal, because we need all of eternity to know how great he is. But we've got to try, even as sinners, in some way to, to begin to grasp his greatness and, and walk in his greatness. Every single nation, the psalmist is saying, and all peoples and are under him. We get so intimidated, don't we, by the changes in politics, and, and this is like an Isaiah 6 kind of experience for us, where we need to remember whether kings die, or whether kings come, or presidents are elected, or not elected. I mean, all of those things are, are small compared to the fact that there is one who is on his throne, and he never moves from that throne, right? That's what Isaiah saw. And he's high and lofty and lifted up, and his, his train fills the temple, and he's your father in his son, Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? We could just close in prayer right there and go home. I mean, that's enough to keep us going for the rest of the week. But let's look at the meat of, of what the psalmist is saying. He's, he's, by the way, he's commanding our hearts. You know, oftentimes when we think of worship, we think, you know, you gotta stop thinking and you gotta just wait for those feelings to come in somehow. But it's interesting how the psalmist starts. He starts with a command to our minds because it's, it's got to start with our thinking. It's got to start with our doctrine. It's got to start with a perspective that is rooted not in some sort of emotion, but in truth that will then lead to those emotions that we need. And so he commands us and he says, be led by the doctrine of God. Praise Yahweh. You know, even when I, I do ministry sometimes, and, and I make this mistake too, we use this idea of praise the Lord almost like just a, wow, that's great. Just a casual phrase. And the psalmist is, is almost rebuking my heart and saying, do you know what that means to say that the Lord is to be praised over your circumstances? Well, look at two ways in which he helps us to saturate our minds with God's greatness. I think the first way he says is boast 
in his rule. Saturate your mind in the greatness of God by boasting in the fact that he is king of kings and lord of lords and his throne reigns forever. Who is he? He's the Lord over all the nations and therefore we need to praise him. Now let's, let's break this down just a little bit. Even this word praise the Lord or hallelujah, we, we know the Hebrew even because that's become uh, uh, an expression for, for good cause in, in our vocabulary as Christians. And the word for praise is hallel. Yah is Yahweh, his name, through which we know that he has entered into a personal relationship with us. But what does hallel mean? And I often thought about you know, hallel, okay, it just means um, hallelujah. It's, it's like a, a great way of saying, oh God, you're great. And as I, I studied this word more, it was, it was really interesting. As, as you look at it, the root of this word is, is really even at times a negative idea. It's used, for instance, turn to, if you, if you have your Bibles in your hand, Jeremiah 9, a familiar passage, and verses 23 and 24. Some of you may have it memorized. If you do, uh, that's wonderful, but let me read it for you. It says, Jeremiah 9, 23 and 24, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this that he knows God. Hallel is all over this verse. It's, it's the word that is translated boast. The, worst, uh, the, the word that we use in our vocabulary for bragging, right? What do you brag about? You brag about the things that you think make you secure, like mundane things, like maybe your golf game. I don't play golf at all, but, you know, the, the things that we think will give us status in society. Maybe your finances. Maybe your education. And, and, and the Holy Spirit is saying, you know what? Before you became a worshiper of the Lord, you were already worshiping. And the thing that changed when you came to know Christ, sometimes it hasn't changed enough, is God changes you from boasting about the stupid stuff that makes you who you are to boasting about only one thing, and that is Him. And that's what Hallel means. It literally means that there is nothing in my life that gives me status or gives me significance. When you look at me, don't think about me, but think about the fact that I'm a sinner saved by God and the only thing in me is Him. That just radically changes how you say hallelujah. In fact, you might hesitate the next time you say hallelujah, right? Because of all that it contains. Psalmist is just reminding us that our life is vapor. And the only substance to boast in is Christ. And he goes on to give us a, a picture of why this Yahweh that we know. And we have to pinch ourselves sometimes when you think of who you are as a sinner. That, that he knows you and you know him. Who is he? You know, I've, I've had a chance sometimes even to meet people that are politicians and important people, and sometimes as I'm going to meet the mayor maybe of my town, I tremble. And, and, and at, at this psalm, what he says even in the beginning is, why do you tremble at these small puppets when you don't realize that you need to tremble before me because I am Yahweh who is over all the nations? Look again at, at verse 1. He says, praise the Lord, all the nations. That's, that's very significantly and intentionally the word goyim. And any Hebrew person that is singing this at Passover 
would recognize that the Lord is not just the Lord of Israel, this one nation, but He's the Lord of all the nations of the earth. That's how great He is. It's amazing that He chose Israel, but He owns Texas. You know, you guys think you're a nation, right? He, he owns all the nations of the world. He owns my nation. And this becomes even more significant when you realize, and this is why Christ was singing the psalm as he went to Calvary. There's, there's so much of Christ in the psalm because this is specifically what was promised to him as the son in Psalm chapter 2, verse 8. Ask of me, and I will give you the nations as your inheritance, the very ends of the earth as your possession. And that's why Jesus' words when he sends us out on gospel mission you know, I, I have to remind myself and people all the time, the Great Commission doesn't start with go. It starts with therefore go. And we, whenever you see a therefore, you need to ask what that therefore is there for, right? And what's the previous verse? I think that's the most significant verse in the Great Commission. All authority in heaven and on earth belongs to me. That's why you need to go out into all the nations because I own them. Sometimes we get intimidated, don't we, when we think about the lost that are out there and they seem to be getting more in control. Don't believe the lie of what you see with your eyes. Believe what you see in Scripture. Christ owns people from even some of the most hateful groups that are out there. He will save them and bring them to himself because he's Lord of the nations. You know, I, I get to travel in planes quite often, and some of you may do it more than me even, but I, I love when I'm taking off from big cities like Houston or L.A., when we're driving into the airport, we can see some of these tall buildings and towers and skyscrapers sometimes going up, you know, several stories high. And you think, wow, man is great as he's made all those things. Then you get in a plane and you're, and you're flying and you begin to see these buildings that, that you thought were massive, slowly growing to the size of maybe tiny zits on the side of the earth, and you begin to get things in perspective. And that's just a little bit of how God sees the world all the time. Isaiah 40, verse 15, behold the nations, those, those scary nations, right, out there in the world, the axes of evil, the, the, the forces that are persecuting the church that we think are going to destroy us even at times are like a drop in the bucket. That's how God sees them. And that's how we need to take our burdens in evangelism to him and we need to say, Lord, will you bring the nations so that they may hear your name because they, they are yours. The nations are a drop in the bucket and are regarded as a speck of dust on the scales, I've been traveling around with this suit for a long time, you know, confession, and I had a lot of dust, and I had a few friends come up and shake some of the dust off my suit even before I preached. Thank you very much. That's how the Lord sees the nations. That's just a speck of dust. Behold, he lifts up the islands like fine dust. And that shouldn't surprise us. He made them. That helps us to, to begin to grasp verses like the wicked flee when... No one is pursuing but the righteous who know the Lord of the nations are as bold as a lion. You know, even as you, you sit around, I was talking with a friend yesterday. Are we so, you know, even as we brag and we talk, sometimes so consumed by our political positions and what party we're on, and I don't want to get into all those debates. You know, I know they have their place and their time. 
that our kids even in our homes are getting scared and insecure because we aren't bragging enough about Christ. We aren't bragging enough about the one kingdom that we belong to, the citizenship that we have that never ends. Mothers, fathers, would, would you begin to have an atmosphere in your home even where you are singing hallelujah to the Lord who is the Lord of the nation so your children begin to walk out with a greater confidence than, than your neighbor because they know who's in charge. They know who rules. Egypt has fallen. Rome has fallen. The U.S. may fall. I don't know. I hope it doesn't. But none of these nations will last. The only kingdom that lasts, and a small taste of that, is look at the church, no matter how hard it's been hammered. You look at the story of the church, and, and I think one of the church fathers even said the blood of the martyrs has been the seed of church growth. And that's true. The more the church gets hit, the more it grows. And the only reason why is because the Lord of the nations rules the church. Isn't that a, a wonderful reminder to us as we look around here at Lakeside? You are the strongest group of people in this community at this moment. And they need you more than you need them because the Lord is on your side. See, this is a mission psalm, but I think ultimately this is a worship psalm because worship, I think, is, we like to say in India, the petrol, or you, here you say gas. We use gas to light our stoves. But the, the gas of, of our, our, our missions is worship. We've only gotten to uh, the first few words as we're saturating our mind with who God is. He's the Lord, and we need to boast in his rule. Boast in the fact that he's king of kings and lord of lords. But not only do we boast in his rule, but look at the second phrase here in verse 1. It says, praise the Lord all you nations. And then it says, laud him all peoples. Now what's that talking about? It's an old English word, laud. I think it's a good translation, but most of us don't know what it means. If you, if you do, you can tell me later, you know, because I don't know what it means. So I look it up. And the original uh, basically is from a Hebrew word that means celebrate. Have a party. A rejoice in. It's, it's really interesting what, what is being provoked here. I mean, the first thing that he's saying is die to yourself and, and forget about who you are. But he's saying that isn't a joyless exercise. Aren't we afraid sometimes, you know, this, this whole call in Christianity to, to take up my cross and follow Jesus. I mean, it must be a miserable life. And so he reminds us, he says, once you do that, it's the most liberating experience you will, you will have in Christianity to stop talking about yourself. And some of you that are older in the faith, you know what that's like, right? You say, oh, I wish when I was younger I could have knocked my head with a with a, with a piece of wood and just told myself, stop bragging. And you just begin to feel liberated when you recognize, even when I talk about my ministry, that it has nothing to do with me. I'm just a useless sinner, and the only thing that matters is Jesus in me. And so he says, celebrate that liberation. Young person, old person, as you, as you grab a hold of worship, it fills your life with joy that the world can't take away. And what is he saying that we need to celebrate? He says, celebrate his redemption. I would say that's the second way in which we can saturate our mind with God's greatness. We need to boast in his rule and we need to celebrate his redemption. Psalm 63 verse three uses the same word. It says, 
because your loving kindness is better than life. Do you believe that? Your loving kindness is better than anything else I can experience. You know, even if I don't have my breakfast this morning, just to have your love, that is better than life. My lips will laud you. My lips will praise you. And he says we need to laud him because he's Yahweh over all peoples. Now this is interesting as we've, we've thought about the greatness of God and that is a big picture idea. The psalmist now gets into a small picture idea. This word for peoples is literally families. You know, as we look around this room uh, this morning, there, there's probably like 50 or 60 families here. And, and what this is saying is that the Lord is not only the Lord over the big empires and the big nations, but he loves the little tribes and the little families as well. He has a, a sovereignty that is big and a sovereignty that is even small. He knows the hair on your heads. He knows every bird before it falls. And particularly the souls of men. He knows each family by name. Isn't that interesting? And that's how he saves the nation, one family at a time. This is something to celebrate, the powerful, uniting love of Jesus. I often like to remind my church, and this is true, you know, as I look over my church in, in my home place, there are people from different states, there are people with different colors of skin, just like here uh, this, this morning, who would never love each other in any other environment were it not for Jesus. And maybe some of you can say amen as I look around this room. But the reason we love each other, let's face the fact, is not because we have the same interests, we have the same education, we have the same economic status. Most of us are all over the place. The only reason we love each other is because of Christ. And the psalmist is saying this is something to sing about. And not only to sing about, but I, th I think there's a further element here to passionately pursue that we would seek to have every tribe and every family under the love of Jesus Christ. You know, let me just give you a little bit of perspective here to infect your heart with this passion that God has for the nations and for the peoples. There's 7,432 unreached peoples in the world. That's 42% of the world that still hasn't heard of Jesus yet. That's, we're, we're 7 billion right now in the world, maybe crossing 7 billion. That's 3.24 billion out of 7 billion that still need to know Jesus Christ. That's 1,600 languages or 114 million people without a Bible in their, their hands. That's how much worship will be brought to Christ, whether we do it or not. He will do it. But he's asking us to be involved in this pursuit because this is the only reason why heaven hasn't started yet because Christ wants more families praising him. Amen? And that's, that's what the heartbeat of the psalmist is here. He's saying, the reason I need to have a bigger picture of life is because God has a big picture of this life. And it's not just about me just providing for my family, but it's for the families of the world through him. Revelation 5.9 tells us ultimately that one day we're going to be there. I long for this day, right? There's nothing better than just being finished with this world except for the fact that we need to bring more worshipers to Christ. But we're going to be singing a new song saying, worthy is the lamb to take the book, Revelation 5.9, and to break its seals and 
This is because you were slain and you did purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. I get convicted by this sometimes, even by some of my students. I have a student that's working with a remote tribal family in the northern part of my country and he is working with a tribe. They don't even have a script in, in their own language. They don't write their own language. It's only a verbal language. And so he's been translating the gospel of Mark so that he can actually teach them to write and read in their own language. And also, of course, share the gospel with them. And he said, you know, sometimes he's in a cold part of our country, which is very unusual. He gets snowed in about six months of the year. We can't even email him. We can't hear from him. He has a wife who's a nurse for good reason so she can take care of him during those six months. And I've asked him, you know, I said, why in the world you're a gifted man? Would you live in such a God-forsaken place? You know, I mean, just honestly. And he said, brother, it's because the Lord has his people that haven't heard him yet here. I know there are some people that are owned by him that just need to be turned around. And I'm going to be here till he finds them. Is that what your heart beats for? I mean, isn't that something so much more exciting than just a retirement plan or IRA and all of those things which probably aren't going to even materialize anyway? There's nothing in this world that, that actually delivers but the promise of Christ that he will rule the nations. What consumes you? Your agenda or the glory and the majesty of Jesus over lost souls? Worship is the fuel of missions, isn't it? May the Lord be the Lord over all the nations. This is true, but it is also to happen, and we are his arms and his feet, his clay pots to make this mission happen in the world. But not only does, does worship fill our hearts with energy and passion and saturate our minds, our minds almost begin to explode as we think about how great God is, but it also strengthens us. And I think that's verse 2. You know, as we think about drawing near to God, it can be a frightening experience. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom as we realize how great He is. And then as we get closer to Him, we begin to realize in amazement that even though He is mighty and He can crush us with the breath of His mouth, He's the God of love. He's the God who seeks His people so that even as we tremble in His presence, we may be strengthened. God doesn't need worship. I hope I don't shock you when I say that, right? He doesn't need human hands to be served as though he needed anything. But if, if I may say it in this way, we need worship. We need worship. In fact, the reason why some of you may be joyless and unhappy this morning is you've forgotten how great God is. And you're just all stuck up with your circumstances and your problems, and I'm not minimizing them. You may have more problems than me. But the way out... It's not through looking down, it's through looking up. And so he goes on to give us the second way in which we can live lives that are consumed by worship. Not only will the Lord fill our minds with his greatness, but secondly, we need to strengthen our hearts with God's goodness. We need to strengthen our hearts with God's goodness. Look at verse two. For his loving kindness is great towards us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. As, as I read those words, don't they have a familiar ring to you? This is the song of the attributes of God throughout the scriptures, that he is full of what? Loving kindness 
and truth. And as you think about, I mean, we could probably go through the Old Testament and the New Testament, but we don't have time. The moments when God significantly spoke of these attributes were moments where men were weak and they needed strength. What's the, the first incident that stands out when a man is told that I am Yahweh and I am full of loving kindness and truth? It's Moses when he was going through the difficulties of leading the people of Israel and he needed to see God so that he would be able to lead them again. That's what pastors need. Don't look at your people. Look at God as you lead your people. And so Moses went up to the mountain and what did God say? Exodus 34, 6, the Lord passed in front of him and proclaimed. The Lord preached to his servant and said, I am Yahweh, Yahweh Elohim, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, I, I, I don't express those attributes that crush you, even though you deserve them because of my son Jesus. I express the attributes that heal you and strengthen you. I'm full of loving kindness and truth. What's the second place in scripture where we see these attributes being mentioned? Isn't it, it, it interesting? It's, a, it's an application, I think, to all sinners that are desperate in need of God's grace. It's John 1.14. We're walking around in the darkness. We're walking around destroying ourselves because of our hatred to God. And what does God do instead of crushing us? He sends us his only son who is full of what? Grace and truth. And so you can see how, I think in a way, Psalm 117 is the theme of, of all of Scripture in some ways. And who Christ is to us because we so desperately need him in this way. And so there are two ways in which God, as we draw near to him with fear and trembling, instead of crushing us, isn't, isn't this amazing? The big people in this world, they, they, they tend to intimidate us with their might and their power. But the mightiest one in the universe, as we draw near to him and we say we are weak, he says, let me strengthen you. Let me heal you. A bruised reed I will not break. A smoldering wick I will not put out. That's the Lord that we know. And that's why we love him. And so there are two aspects of God's goodness that strengthen us. The first is, and there's so much in this psalm, isn't it amazing? You think two verses and goodness, time is not enough. Eternity is not enough even to get, this is why the, the word of God is inspired. It's not my word, it's so profound. But the first way in which he is good is his love conquers us. His love literally, like a military force, comes into our world and takes over. You're saying, Sammy, why would you speak of love in that way? Well, when it says his loving kindness, some of your translations might say is great towards us. That's a Hebrew word, and I don't like to talk about Hebrew too much, but this is a fun word. It's gibor. You know, it even sounds mighty. And it's, it's translated in several parts of the scripture as a warrior. And in the verbal form, here's an interesting use of it. Uh, and, and you love this. It was used, you remember when Moses was up on the mountain and Aaron and Hur were raising his hands up in prayer and, and Joshua was fighting down there in the valley and, and Exodus 17 verse 11 said, when Moses got tired, what happened? His hands fell down. And who gibur then? Who prevailed then? Who conquered then? The Amalekites. But then these, these dear deacons, they raised his hands up and he began to pray again to show that the battle was the Lord's. And as he raised his hands up, it said what? Israel gibbored and they prevailed. And now you turn back to Psalm 117. 
It's, it's you, you know, and this is so important because sometimes we think that God's love is like our love. Some kind of romantic, sappy, touchy-feely love. God forbid, you know, that, that it is anything like our love. God's love is a love that is like a warrior that whether you want it or not will invade your life, even sometimes against your will. What is our will to stand against him, amen? He will invade in the worst, darkest dungeons that sinners seek to bury their lives in and say, you are mine, and dig you out and capture you. Isn't that your story? I mean, it's all of our story. As we think about our testimony, it's about the fact that I wasn't pursuing Christ. I was running away from him as far and fast as I could, but I couldn't get an inch away from him because he is the warrior who wins me over. And he wins me over with his loving kindness. You know, even that word is rich. It, it, it's not just some ordinary word for love, but it's, it's kesed. It, 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 I would define it as the attribute of God in which he he loves not just those who are good to him, but he loves his enemies. And that's one of the amazing things about the church is we're not here because we're nice people. <laughs> we're here because we're the worst of the worst. We don't deserve to be here. And that's why we're here, so that we would showcase the power of God over his enemies, right? And as you think about your own testimony, don't give up with your grandpa or your grandma, you know, I'd say, man, they've been resisting for years. The war's not over yet. And Jesus is there, right there. You know, keep, keep sharing the word, keep ministering the word because that's how faith comes and it won't happen through you, it will happen through your warrior prince who will win his people when he wants to. Psalm 103, verses eight and nine. The Lord is merciful and gracious Slow to anger. I mean, he can fight with anger, but he chooses to fight in love. Abounding in mercy, he will not strive with us, nor will he keep his anger forever. He has not dealt with us according to our sins, nor punished us according to our iniquities. And as we think about this, I mean, the love of God ultimately. This is why Paul prays even for the Ephesians in that hinge verse when he's, he's talking about how they need to go out and be imitators of God. He said, you can't do this until you saturate your mind with the love of Christ. And it has to start there, isn't it? The conquering love of God ultimately, I mean, you can think about your testimony and you can see maybe evidences of, there that, uh, of, of the love of Christ and its power, but ultimately the love of Christ has to be seen in Christ, in the Gospels, in Calvary. And that's where you will fall in love once again with how great God is. You know, just think about it, the love that he expressed to us, and I, I like to remind my people of this. Sometimes we think that the the deepest way and maybe the central way in which Jesus loved us is six hours on Calvary. And there's a true element to that, but it's, it's also completely against what the Gospels teach us. I mean, of course, he loved us before the foundation of the world, but think about the 33 and a half years of loving us without giving up. When even his own brothers would mock him, right? He was, he was born in poverty to a poor family and he, he endured all of that. Why? Because of his love for you and me. He endured 33 and a half years of faithfulness 
when even his own disciples ran away from him, he still loved them to the end. There were so many moments, praise God, that you or I were not on the mission of Christ where we would have just thrown in the towel and say, these people don't deserve it. But he loved us. He loved us, of course, on Calvary. I, I love thinking about Gethsemane. You know, after Jesus finished praying in Gethsemane, the Greek in, in, in Matthew even says he saw his disciples sleeping. <laughs> I mean, that would make you give up right there. But he didn't because he's the son of God. And he said to them, get up and go. I mean, he, really, he literally commanded them. If anyone should have been encouraged, it should have been the disciples encouraging Christ, right? He's encouraging his disciples to take him to his cross. That's how strong he is in his love for us. As he hung on that tree, instead of speaking words of bitterness towards people that he had created, his first words are what? Father, forgive them for they know not what they're doing. And the Lord answered that even in those moments when the, the thief gets saved and the centurion gets saved. Jesus was loving his saints even in those moments while he was dying for them. And I believe that prayer was ultimately answered uh, a few months later when those that said crucify him said, what shall we do to be saved? That's because our king is a warrior in his love. Never forget that, brothers and sisters. Because that's what saved you. Not your love, but his love. Amen? Romans 8, 29. I, I don't think I need to remind you of verses like this, but that's why these verses are there. Can anything, height, nor depth, nor any other created thing separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? You know, I, I think one of the things that is really unique about the Christian life is, of course, we face a lot of trials, and we don't need to talk about our trials. It's depressing, but... One of the unique things about Christianity is the more we are tried, the more we see Christ's love. I think that's what Romans 8 is teaching us, that the people that are burned the most are people that know the love of Christ the most because it's that kind of love. It's not an easy love that just meets you in easy times. It's a love that can take you through the fires of life and bring you out on the other side. Praise God that he loves us in this way. That's why Paul says the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5, 14, holds us together. I think that, that's a good way to translate. It literally holds us together when we need to be held together. When we find sufficiency in Christ's love, we become men and women that can walk again. Not only does his love conquer us, but finally, his promises control us. This is another way in which we can strengthen our hearts with his goodness. As it says, and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. That word for truth, and the reason why I'm, I'm saying it's promises, is, is the word amenu, which, from which we derive the word amen, right? Every time we say amen. But it's, it's not so much just as a ritual, but the fact that we're agreeing with not just the prayer, but the fact that the content of the prayer reflects who God is. And it's rooted in his attributes. It's rooted in his word. It's rooted in his truth. And his truth is more real than anything else in life, right? This is why I love preaching the word of God. You know, there's so much in this day and age of fake news and fake teaching. And, and, and we're so aware of it. And we can become so cynical, even as Christians. I can't trust anybody or anything. And I think this is a great reminder for us to 
run away from cynicism, but not because the world is true, but because the word is true. I had one of my church members tell me he had to get rid of his cable, get rid of his TV, and stop watching it, he said, because I was just getting so bitter. And he said, all, I said, so what were you doing? Were you just staring at the walls? He said, no, I started memorizing scripture. I said, praise the Lord, you know. He said, because I needed to wash my mind with negativity. And the only way to do that is to know the word again. Because it refreshes and revives dead hearts like ours. Amen? The truth of the Lord, when it sinks into your heart, it's everlasting, isn't it? It's everlasting. I knew of a, a guy, he eventually joined our Bible college. He said for 10 years, he fought against his wife who was a believer because she was a Christian. And he just made his effort to be as mean to her as he can. And he said, but she kept loving me and sharing the word with me. He said that was the important thing. And I could just never forget that 10 years later, I just gave up. I couldn't do it anymore. And he got saved and he, he, he became a pastor. But the truth of the Lord has that power. It's everlasting. The Puritan writer Thomas Brooks said, the word of the Lord is a light to guide you a counselor to counsel you, a comforter to comfort you, a staff to support you, a sword to defend you, and a physician to cure you because Christ is in it. The word is a mind to enrich you, a robe to clothe you, and a crown to crown you. What an amazing psalm, isn't it? We've just touched the surface, but I pray that your heart is lifted up to say, Lord, help me to live not for myself and my small agendas, but for your agenda, which is the only reason why you saved me in the first place. Think about Jesus. Again, as he was singing this song with his disciples before he went to the cross. He said, I go to the cross because I am worthy of all the nations. I go to the cross not because these people are so lovely and because they love me, they're my enemies, but I go to the cross because my love can overcome them. I go to the cross not because of their truth and their faithfulness and their veracity, but because I have promised to save them. And my sheep are mine, and they need to hear my voice. This is the rock. He is the rock that we build our lives on. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this psalm, and may you use it to rejuvenate our hearts, to live afresh for your mission, which is to worship you and bring other worshipers into your presence and fade away so that the glory of the Lord may fill the earth as the waters cover the sea. To that end, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.